Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and uh, I'm excited. I have uh, Bill Woodley back on this week. I know uh, Bill recently had an article published in the Progressive uh, Dairy Magazine here in Canada and uh, about uh, some chop length stuff. And I thought it'd be great timing to have him on, you know, with uh, with alfalfa and grass crops kind of coming to uh, coming to fruition here. I know, uh, you know, the springtime is, is, is always great to hit crops in the ground, corn and beans and, and start making feed uh, feed for the year. So anyways, Bill, if you just want to introduce yourself and let us know what you've uh, been up to lately, that'd be awesome. Yeah, thanks very much, Keith. Um... I think as most of you know, I retired about five years ago. I actually, exactly five years ago. It's been five years uh, working as a consultant. But really, I only work for a couple of different companies. And, and my involvement is more on the training side and, and uh, making sure they understand uh, some key concepts. One of the key concepts is on forages and forage fiber digestibility is kind of the key thing. So part of the interesting thing is I've traveled a fair bit, not lately because of COVID, obviously, but uh, over the last five years, different countries and how they do things. And you can see a, a wide uh, variation on how they think about harvesting crops. So Keith mentioned the article on um, particle size or length of cut. To me, that's going to be the key interest in the next few years, because if you travel the world, you see such a, a difference in length of cut. And what we're going to talk about here is really to come up with a more homogeneous TMR, which I think in, in a lot of cases will mean slightly lower length of cut for haylages and maybe a tiny bit higher for corn silage. We're going to think about why length of cut is important. You were talking, uh, or I guess we were talking the other day about uh, kind of what you were doing in Poland. And I thought it was kind of interesting what you were doing with that farm. Yeah, well, it's actually the Ukraine. It's really interesting because what they want is North American expertise. And uh, they they travel to the U.S. quite a lot to look at how large farms are, are working. So in the world, what you see is large operations such as Russia has large farms, China has large farms, and Ukraine is developing large operations. So they're trying to mimic what's happening in the U.S., um, but they have some complications. And as you probably know, the Ukraine has the best soil in the world, some of the best potential for crops. But this year, for example, um, so 2020 corn silage came back at virtually no starch, no starch in the corn silage, maybe 3%. So the fascinating thing here is that they have thousands of tons of corn silage on this farm and they have to feed it and there's no starch and uh, it's quite unusual. So what we're feeding there is essentially a large bulky grass and that Mm -hmm. poses all sorts of uh, problems. So I thought that was quite fascinating. Now in Poland though, because you did mention Poland, this is where I found that length of cut in Poland, uh, they're recommending between five and 10 millimeters. On so silage or on haylage? Uh, on corn silage. Okay. Yep. On haylage longer. Okay. And this is coming from Germany. And it's quite interesting. So what they're looking at is very, very fine corn silage and longer haylage. Now, to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But the reasoning, I think, is uh, kernel processing is not uh, tremendous there. And then try to improve the quality of kernel processing by cutting finer. 
So the reason that's interesting is the research shows that doesn't work. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of talk a little bit about this too, because I know you said yeah. in Japan, like they wanted to feed long, like long Bailey type product. Yes. And exactly. it, it's just, it's so interesting, like with uh, just the dynamics around the world um, with mm -hmm. how they, they see their forage and how they process their forage and maybe what their yeah. production kind of translates into. So, well, the Japanese one was interesting because if you go to the Southern islands of Tokyo, what we have there is uh, traditional farms and a lot of Thai style farms with a lot of Canadian cows, which is quite fascinating. You go to the North Island, what you see is larger farms and more, maybe 200 cows and more robots starting to go in. So in the South though, they have been purchasing dry Timothy hay from Canada for years because 30 years ago, they, they thought that was the thing to do. But what I find, find out is that Timothy hay is long. It has the, it has the heads on it. Um, so basically I've, low, low quality, very mature product fed long. And I can talk about some research coming that has already been happening at uh, the Miner Institute, but reducing particle size, which means grinding that hay finer, actually improved production, improved intake. So what yeah, they thought yeah. they were doing the right thing by feeding this long hay, and in their mind, that was going to improve, you know, room and function, all these things, it actually does the opposite. And uh, that's what I found fascinating. So, well, we've known, well, that, we've for known that for quite a while in calves, like, uh, yes. you know, the old research was, oh, let's feed long stem hay and then let's not feed anything. And let's now it's, you know, let's feed kind of moderate to low quality forages that are, that are chopped really fine. So it's just kind of interesting how everything kind of comes full circle. No, it does. It does. So, so part of the interesting thing on length of cuts, I, I know we're talking about length of cut a little bit, but what it shows is that if you have poor quality forages, so let, let's say some years, the first cut haylage is really poor quality, which usually means mature. That's really what poor quality translates to, it's mature. Therefore, the plant is highly lignified. The research, research is showing that reducing the length of cut actually will improve both intake and milk production. So for example, if, even on haylage, if you have a, a long, mature, poor quality haylage, you're better off to take that in the TMR and actually reduce particle size or before harvesting, reduce particle size. That's kind of the recommendation. So I don't know if you know this, Bill, but apparently protein at price is really high right now. Oh, I haven't been following that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, we're coming back into first cut. And uh, yeah. I know this is the time of year that we always think, you know, we get to start making our, our feed and, and forages for the following year. So there's a lot yes. of thought that goes into first cut. And I just really want to talk about things that can help us improve quality mm -hmm. to help lower our uh, purchase protein and purchase grains, right? Like, so what is it? about cutting early that is so important to help with forage quality? So um, when you look at forage quality, there's a few things you can look at. Uh, it's, it's the quality of the fiber, that's number one. It's the quality of the starch, that's number two. And then it's the, the quality of the protein, that's number three. Well, you're, there's no starch in alfalfa. So we're not gonna talk about starch, but you would if you're talking about corn silage. So really you're talking about fiber and protein. Those are the two, the two key things. So, so protein is highly related to uh, maturity and the amount of leaves that you're harvesting with alfalfa because the, the, the protein's in the leaf, not in the stem, if that makes sense. Yep. 
So you have to look at things like um, re reducing leaf loss, for example. Well, that's highly related to the moisture content or the dry matter content that you're harvesting at. So if you harvest dry and early, you're going to have a fragile leaf. That's, you're going to lose that leaf. Uh, mm -hmm. and that leaf's going to be lost to the environment, right? So things like wilting properly, not raking aggressively, doing some of those things uh, will improve the protein quality because you're retaining leaf count. Um, so those are kind of the key things you want to look at there. I should mention that to make things very, very simple, the dry matter content you should harvest at for most crops, most crops is between 35 and 40%. Yeah, we talk about that with corn silage a lot, and I know... Yeah, that's always the question too with haylage and that, and I think yeah. that's that's probably one of the most important things. Like if you can get the moisture right, I think a lot of the other things, fermentation, packing density, oh. all that other stuff, kind of falls into place. So totally. So if you think of thirty, let's say thirty-five to forty percent, that applies to corn silage. It, it applies to wheat silage or grain silage, and applies to alfalfa silage. Uh, you, you can make alfalfa silage drier. There are some benefits, but then you're walking a fine line where you're losing leaf leaf loss at that point, right? Mm -hmm. So to keep it really simple, I just think 35 to 40, that's your window, whether it's corn silage, barley silage, or alfalfa silage. That's kind of the window you want to look at. So that's one thing that will improve uh, leaf count and will improve uh, protein quality. Yeah, it's funny, like with the fiber thing too, as I know, like the more leaf you lose, the higher the fiber content of that alfalfa haylage is. And alfalfa oh, yeah. is a very digestible, like I don't know how many people know this, but like the fiber in alfalfa is quite bound, like the cow can't necessarily use it. It's inherently the lowest digestible crop you can grow yeah. Yeah. because of the stem. Where the grasses, and I'm fascinated by grasses, I think every cow should have some grass in there. Uh, diet, but the grasses, just the way they develop, are different. So alfalfa is a stem with leaves. And the, inter the interesting thing is that leaves never change in digestibility. They're always highly, highly digestible. But it's the stem changes over time, and that's where maturity effect comes in. The, the, the stem mm -hmm. is changing and becoming less mature, sorry, more mature and less digestible. Like if you hear people talk about it, it's lignifying, yep. right? Yep. Yeah, so the key thing is, and this, this is a bizarre concept, but you got to think about plants. What the, what the plant is trying to do is reach a reproductive point. And it, it's not thinking of getting consumed by a cow or being you know, put in a silo. It wants to re reach reproductive maturity. And to do when they do that, the plant becomes uh, less digestible. So the thing is, lignin is good for the plant. It's not good for the cow. And I think that's fascinating. It's good for the plant for survivability. It's good for the plant for standability. It's good for the plant just to live uh, and reproduce uh, over the years. But it's not good for the cow. The cow has mm -hmm. a hard time breaking that link and uh, deriving the energy from fiber is kind of the key thing. And so why is it that grasses are so much lower? Like, it just seems that, you know, we always talk about cut timing and first cut, you know, you want to cut before the grasses go to head. And really mm -hmm. it's just so that you get that immature fiber or more digestible fiber, I guess, is probably the more proper yeah. uh, way to call it. But like, mm -hmm. why why is that? Well, the grasses are interesting. They they are highly digestible early, but become a lot lower digestible later than alfalfa, where alfalfa is more even. And the reason is is the leaf is what's happening, right? So if you harvest grasses really early, you get a super digestible product. If you harvest them late, like that Timothy A in Japan, 
is very uh, indigestible, where alfalfa is more even. So um, grasses you want to harvest early is kind of the key thing. And you have about a 12 to 14 day window difference between alfalfa and grasses in most uh, type of plants you're growing in Ontario. So the grasses would be two weeks ahead of the alfalfa. And, and yeah. it really depends on how much grass you have in that blend. Uh, you know, that'll, that'll have a big impact on digestibility as well. Yeah, I know. And it's been like, if you think about it, like just growing conditions in the last little bit, it's been much more um, conducive to growing grasses right now. You know, it's been kind of cool and wet. You know, the spring cereals, like the wheat and the triticale and the rye fields that I've been looking at, like they yeah. just they look like beautiful, beautiful feet out there. So now it's just, uh, we've got the good conditions. Now it's just talking about, uh, getting it, uh, getting it cut right and chopped and chopped right. So, so like if we're looking at an alfalfa crop or, a alfalfa grass crop or a triticale or rye, like w when, in your opinion, do you think we should be aiming to cut? Well, I, and first cut I tend to aim at where, where the grass is and it depends on how much grass is in that mix. That's the, the tricky part. So the grasses are a cool weather grasses that we grow in Canada, where in the South they grow warm weather grasses like Bermuda grass. Mm -hmm. But cool weather grasses, they, they thrive in cool weather. So what we're getting this year is cool weather. They're gonna thrive where alfalfa is gonna lag. So if you wait for alfalfa, the problem is you're gonna lose digestibility in the grasses. And then you're gonna complain about the first cut, you know, being low digestibility. But that depends. If you're growing a pure stand of alfalfa, there's no impact. But if you grow 80-20 or 90-10, what happens is over time, so over year one, year two, year three, you're, you could see a shift in how much grass versus alfalfa is in that mix. And what we find is some key differences. So I'll give you an example. The fescues tend to outcompete alfalfa. So over time, the third year stand with fescue in it, will have more fescue and less alfalfa. A product like orchard grass tends to be on the same level as alfalfa. So over time, you know, the plants are thinning out anyways, but you're getting more of the same blend over time. Yeah, I know I had a, I had an interesting conversation with the producer about alfalfa and I don't know. I, I thought it was a really neat concept is like only keeping alfalfa for two years, you know, your seeding year and then one more year, just cut aggressively. And then use your end credit for corn or another crop because after, you know, after, you know, year two, year three, year four, which producers typically keep alfalfa in for in Ontario in the rotations yeah. and you're just losing so much alfalfa and, and feed volume on those years. So I, it, well, it was yeah. interesting. Well, essentially because, um, I, I say most of, most of the crop planted is an alfalfa, tim sorry, an alfalfa grass blend of some sort. Yeah. So when you're planting that initially, the thing to think about is the grasses germinate at a, at a lower temperature as well, right? So if you have a cool spring that you're planting an alfalfa grass for the first year, and there's a cool spring, the grasses will germinate faster. And at the end of the summer, there'll be more grasses and less alfalfa. So it depends yeah. on when you plant, how you plant, how much you plant, uh, and what kind of variety. So I'm a big fan of pure alfalfa and pure yep. grass stands. And I know that sounds a little odd, but to me, then you know what you have. You have alfalfa, you can harvest a, a certain window. You have grasses, you harvest two weeks earlier, and uh, you know what you have. So I think that's the way to go in the future is have pure grass, pure alfalfa, 
and not the mixtures. But why do producers plant mixtures, for example, Keith? Like, what's your thoughts? Like, why are they doing alfalfa grasses? I think it's storage, like bunks and silos, right? Like, yeah, a lot of our herds just can't. A lot of our herds just can't handle having you know three bunkers open at a time, right? Like, you just don't have the feed out yeah. ability in a lot of situations. So, yeah, exactly. And the other other reason is grasses give you tonnage. Yep. For that first cut, right? If you have a, a cool spring, you're going to get tonnage, and it's going to fill it, fill in the space with grasses. So, so it's not a bad concept, but just something to think about in the future. Um, yeah. yeah. And I've been thinking about it a lot. Like it, it's, it's something that, you know, I'm just trying to like the way I look at it is land in Ontario is 20 to $30,000 an acre, depending where you are yeah. um, in most dairy country and like most dairy areas. And how can we maximize how much dry matter, how many dry matter tons can we get off that mm-hmm. acre? And I think the old thinking of, you know, we're going to grow a grass, a 80, 20, 90, 10, blend it's still pretty solid management decisions but i think it is you know we got to start thinking about other crops you know the triticales and the rise and the oats and you know growing crops after crops or overwinter crops you know after corn silage plant some triticale so you have some spring feed to kind of help build inventory because i know this time of year it's always like i'm always flipping diets like flipping more yeah well, corn silage is we might be tight on corn silage so let's uh let's feed more haylage you know that type of thing and then you know, through the winter, we're going to feed more corn silage, but, uh, yeah, exactly. consistency's consistency's key, right? So, um, it is. So the, the one opportunity we do have, and I, I know it's a double-edged sword because we're looking at straw, but wheat harvested early is a grass. And that goes back to the, to the triticale or the, or the rye, like a lot of these crops, yeah. like if you get it outside of like maybe the Great Lakes area, a lot of dairy producers say, for instance, in the U S like in the Southeast, they grow a lot of winter wheat, like they plant corn um, in March, late February, early March, harvest mm-hmm. it in June, July, leave that in fallow until um, like September, October. And then they plant wheat back in there and then harvest the wheat for feed. Like they don't grow, like I, no. we were in Georgia and Florida and they didn't grow any alfalfa. No. And if you go to Texas, uh, wheat is one of the key crops. And the reason is they're looking at digestible fiber and they can always buy starch and starch is corn. So you can always buy corn. Yeah. So they're trying to harvest the wheat as a highly digestible uh, fiber source. And I, I do have some data that shows they compared cereal wheat and cereal rye. Mm-hmm. And the cereal wheat actually is a lot more highly digestible NDF than cereal rye taken off at the same time point. Yep. I could take both of them off very, very, very early. They're the same, but as they mature, there's, there's quite a difference. So if you take the, the wheat off pre-head, you know, pre-emergence of the, of the head of the grain, it's highly digestible grass and it's an amazing crop. And then you can put in uh, beans or some, another crop into that field. Yeah. Or, or sorghum and, and you know, yeah. then you get two cuts of sorghum. And the other thing to think about too, I know, um, we really like growing hay here, but I mean, if, if you're really pressed for land or you have to hire everything done, like custom operators now, you know, for haylage, if you're hiring that whole thing done from cutting to merging to chopping and packing, you know, you're looking at $1,200 an hour to get a custom (laughs) operator in and a thousand to 1200. It just seems what the going rate is. So, I mean, that's a big cost too. So, if you're getting more dry matter per acre, you mean 
it just lowers your your uh, harvest costs on that, I guess. So, you yes. know what? Like, what do you think? Like a good alfalfa yield would be like a grass blend first cut. Like, would you get two ton of the dry matter to the acre? Two, two and a half, three, maybe. I think you should, but see, it really depends on a, a few things. One is the temperature we're experiencing right now. Um, if we get some warm temperatures, the alfalfa is going to jump and it's going to take over and be a, a great crop. If it stays cool, we're not going to get that tonnage, right? Yep. But you're still better off yep. to take it off earlier than later and then bank on the second cut. And that's kind of the key thing. So a lot mm -hmm. of producers wait too long. They get a very mature, uh, looking for tonnage to get a mature alfalfa and grass. And then the second cut, is, uh, they don't get a huge second cut. So if you do it early, you, you tend to get a high second cut as well and uh, high, highly digestible. So yeah. we got to take it off. Uh, kind of the recommendation for alfalfa is uh, you can look at cutting, not cutting height, sorry, the height of the plant to about mm -hmm. 28 to 29 inches. And you can get those, uh, those sticks to kind of measure that as well. And you really want just the, the node starting. You don't want any flower, just kind of the bud starting is what you yeah. want. So, and that makes a huge difference on digestibility. So yeah, I know when you're and your window is a lot wider, I guess, too, with alfalfa than maybe a yeah. grass alfalfa blender, straight grass, right? Like we laugh about rye. Like if you look at rye at flag leaf in the morning, it's probably going to be all headed out by the afternoon, right? Yeah. Like the window, totally. the harvest window is so tight where alfalfa, you know, it's a week to 10 days if it's like going from different stages, right? So. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. So I think um, I've always been a big fan of harvesting early. If you don't get the tonnage, hopefully the second cut comes along. But if your quality is, and a lot of people are worried about the quality being too good. That's kind of the, the worry, right? Well, you can always temper that with some straw. Yeah, You're better off to have too good a quality haylage and just add a little bit of straw in there to temper it down a little bit rather than waiting for a, a lower quality, if that makes sense. Yeah, for, you know? for cows, I agree with that. For heifers, I, I had some interesting comments from people about, you know, you have to look at the price of straw if you got to buy straw versus the price of protein, right? Yeah. Like what's, what's, what's giving you better bang for your buck and maybe what does your farm need? is a question yes. I think you have oh, to ask yeah. as well. well. But like in general though, I think the recommendation would be just to kind of cut early and cut early and cut often and oh, yeah. be done with it. I, so. I think so too. But yeah. you, you can use a uh, poor quality halos for heifers, right? Like it kind of makes sense. Oh, absolutely. They don't yeah. They look yeah. at good feed and get fat. So. <laughs> yes. Well, in fact, in, in Mexico, what they do, uh, they harvest corn silage for the dairy cows and then they harvest high moisture corn for the dairy cows and they harvest the stalks for the, uh, for the heifers. Yeah. You know, you don't need, you don't need the grain. You don't need all that energy. You're trying to control, actually you're trying to control average daily gain in the, in the mature, the bread heifer to about 800 to 900 grams a day of gain. Like you don't want a lot of gain. You just want no, structure. Two pounds. Yeah. You want to, yeah. you want to grow that animal, but you don't necessarily, you're not trying to yeah. fatten her for, for the beef market no. rate. So. No, no, exactly. Because you want that animal to grow. So then it becomes an issue of enough protein and not enough, not too much energy is kind of the key issue. So, yeah. And I think back to your, your wheat and your rye comment too, and maybe that's why we're seeing more triticale because it's, it, it's just a, it's a cross between Great. the two rates. So yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. And I think we've got to think that way too. If you look at the, the legumes that we're planting, it's mainly alfalfa, maybe clover, you know, that's it. Those yep. are the legumes. Uh, and there's no starch associated with them. They're just, they're just protein and, and sugars. The grasses, corn silage is a grass. 
wheat is a grass, barley is a grass, and you know, Timothy and orchard, and yep. those are all grasses as well, right? So, uh, the key thing with grasses or cereals, if you see starch on your forage analysis, then you've waited too long to harvest them for fiber digestibility. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Any starch means you, the, the plant is saying, okay, I produce a seed, I'm at reproductive maturity, therefore the stem is either straw-like or, or corn silage, it's a, it's a big stem. So that's the key thing. If you're waiting for that grain, then you waited too long for, for a cow on, on yeah. things like wheat and cereal. Yeah. What are your thoughts on cut height? Like, I know that's a kind of a hot topic too. I know grass and alfalfa grow a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, like, just what do you think? Like, okay, so for instance, we'll give you a hypothetical, like it's a little bit wetter right now. Um, yeah. I know most of Ontario has seen some rain here in the last few days. Um, say farmers had to go out right now and the soil moisture is a little bit higher. Like what would, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, the main recommendation for cut height is uh, three inches for alfalfa and four inches for grasses. And the reason is that, that grasses uh, store their energy in the, uh, in kind of that you know clump in the, on the top where alfalfa mm -hmm. stores their energy in the root system. So grasses, you can damage more by cutting lower. But I find a lot of producers cut it uh, two inches for alfalfa. Now, it's, it's not as much of a problem for first cut, but it's a problem for a third and fourth cut if you're trying to get that winter storage. But standard recommendation would be three inches. Now, if you go from two inches to four inches, you lose tonnage. We know that. Yeah. But you also improve fiber digestibility. That's just like corn it's, silage, the high chop, low chop. Yeah. 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 But the differences are remarkable. Like, you know, corn silage, you're going from four inches to 20 inches. Mm -hmm. With alfalfa, you're going from two inches to four inches or three inches. So cutting height has an impact on fiber digestibility, which so the, the higher you cut, the more digestible the product, because the bottom of the plant is the most lignified part of the plant. The top of the plant is the less lignified. And the reason is lignin is used as cement to glue the plant together to hold it up. So it's the bottom of the plant is, uh, is going to be lower digestibility. Yeah, I always use the analogy. People think of a broken record, but yeah. I use the analogy of the CN Tower. Like, if you look at the CN yeah. Tower and compare it to like a blade of grass or, or a stem mm -hmm. of alfalfa, all yeah. the structures in the bottom to keep the top from toppling. Yeah. Yes. So, if exactly. you cut a little bit higher, you're getting rid of more of that lignin and kind of that yes. insoluble fiber, all the kind of the crud that you don't necessarily get. It's just taking up space in the cow. It's not yeah. actually providing any nutritional benefit, right? No, no. It's a, so it's a major benefit. And then plus it just, I think it helps the, the, the plant structure and the survivability. I think that makes a difference. Now, the other thing you did mention at the very beginning, ash content. Can we just step back a little bit and maybe explain to yeah. producers what ash is? Like, it sounds totally. great. Like you look at it on paper, but I don't, I wonder if people understand kind of what the ash content actually is. Perfect. I can, I can talk about it for yeah. sure. So ash is basically take the, the forage sample and they burn that forage sample. And what that is left over is ash, just like a, you know, a fireplace. So ash is really a combination of the macro minerals and the micro minerals and then silica. So calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, that type of thing. So inherently alfalfa has higher ash content than corn silage. It has to, there's more minerals in that small plant versus that giant corn silage stock. Yeah. So you're gonna have a higher ash content in uh, alfalfa but if you do the math you should only have about eight to nine percent ash in alfalfa because you have two percent potassium you know one percent calcium that type of thing so when you add it up 
if you have over 9% ash, that means you could have soil contamination. And it could be soil or manure, but let's say it's soil. So soil contamination means you're flicking up during a raking process or harvesting process dirt. And that dirt is adding to the ash content. So I've seen samples, honestly, at 15 to 18% ash. Yeah. And that and is it just, so high. And it just displaces all the digestible fiber, your carbohydrate. Okay. Like, Taking yeah. up space. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too is it's bringing some uh, soil-borne uh, bacteria into the mix. And those bacteria can cause a problem with the fermentation process or with the cow itself. So you some, if you see a wet silage, the high ash content silage, and you see uh, ammonia levels at greater than 10% of the crude protein value, mm -hmm. then you know you have a problem with uh, uh, fermentation. And those, those bugs are starting to break down that protein quality. So take a look at your forage analysis. And if you see that percent uh, ammonia, is a, sorry, is a, ammonia is a percent of crude protein above 10%, you might have a problem. And that's, that's really uh, moisture and ash content combination. On the samples from, from Cumberland, you can see also potential for soil contamination. Yep. And that's really based on, on iron content and uh, how, they, how they measure that. So, because basically with soil, they're bringing a lot of uh, iron into the mix. Yeah, and, I, and like the ash level, it's something that I think you really just have to be cognizant of because yes, it's either, you know, maybe you're cutting too low, maybe your rake's set too aggressively. There's a lot of different things. You know, I think in a little bit wetter soil conditions, you might, you know, yeah. if you have your rake set too aggressively or something like that, like yeah. you might be throwing just more dirt totally into that, oh, into totally. that windrow so yes or it could be at the bunk silo that's what i find a lot is that you look at the bunk silos i mean it's great to have a lot of cement in front of the bunk silo that you can move around on but a lot of people don't so when they're bringing their their packing equipment in they're bringing dirt into that mix yeah so it's not coming from the, the harvesting it's coming from the ensiling part yeah well there's there's lots of areas that you can pick up some contamination so yeah exactly so that's so so that's what that's what ash is so you just have to be aware of it and then Take a look at some other, look at butyric acid levels and look at mm -hmm. uh, ammonia levels. And that'll tell you the story a little bit. Yeah. And it's something that I think we've overlooked in the past. And I've really focused on making sure that we get that number lower because it just like, if you, you're presented with a kilogram of dry matter and if 8% of it is unusable versus 12 or 15% of it's unusable, that's a big difference. Like you're just in siling or putting a lot yeah. of material in the bunk silo that's taking up space of good good fiber yeah exactly and, and then yep. you want the most digestible the, the best quality you can get right so that's that's part of the dilemma so i want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about yep. chop length i know i mentioned off at the or mentioned there at the beginning of the podcast that uh that you did uh, just wrote an article for progressive dairy about chop length and kind of the concept of why it's important and how the the gut works and in digesting uh, forages. So if you would just want to talk about that a little bit, that'd be great. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a neat, neat uh, concept, not a concept, but just understanding how cows eat, for example, yeah. and what happens. So when we, we think rumination, uh, you like to think cud chewing and that's, that's it. And that's the, and, I, and that's the way I thought for years, rumination is cud chewing. Well, the, the, the reality is rumination is eating cut chewing and rumen contractions. There's three things going on to create this rumination process. And I really think it's fascinating how it all works. 
So eating and cut chewing are different things altogether. Now, rumen contraction is just that the, the rumen feels that tactile response to fiber and contracts one to three times per minute and churns things up a little bit. That's what rumen contraction is. But the eating and chewing is interesting because the eating is designed to reduce particle size. That's what we, we know that. So if you have long hay, what's the cow going to do? She's going to stand and eat it yep. and, and rip it apart and break it down. Cut chewing is different. It's really designed to abrade the fiber. Now, abrading the fiber just means to rip it apart and expose all that fiber to the bacteria in the, in the rumen. So there's unbelievably fascinating research out of Italy. And they actually took the cud. So the cud is the bolus. So if a cow brought the cud up, the researchers had to grab that cud, dry it down, and then put it through a Penn State shaker box, basically, and look at the fiber or the length of the fiber. And the, the fascinating thing was, no matter what the length of the forage going in, the cud was always around eight to 10 millimeters in length. So the cud is being brought up not to reduce particle size, but just to get more nutrients out of that fiber. And I think that's fascinating. So here's the big story though, is that the more time they spend eating, which means that the stuff is long, the less time they have for resting behavior. And resting behavior, they need, let's say, 11 or 12 hours a day. So if you have really long stuff, what you're going to find is the cow is going to be at the bunk, chewing, 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 trying to rip it apart, trying to break down particle size. You're taking away from resting time and uh, also cud chewing time as well. So you're not going to get the nutrients out of that plant. So if you reduce particle size, what you're doing is reducing eating time. It's that simple. You're You're mechanically reducing particle size where the cow was doing it before. The cut chewing time stays the same and you're getting more nutrients out of it and they have more time to rest. So if you look at the Japanese farmer that bought the hay from Canada that was long, mature, what they're doing is that cow is just eating, 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 trying to reduce particle size to fit the rumen and they're not uh, getting the nutrients out of that feed. So, so I think that's, that's the fascinating part about it is that uh, you can reduce particle size and still get rumination and still get effective cudgeling. So the length is, is not that important, to be honest. So how does that affect passage rate then? Like, Because the old thought was a, a little bit finer passes quicker, or is it yes. just because it's driving more intake? Like she's spending more time eating rather than breaking down the TMR. So is it just like driving intake that way? Yeah, I mean, a passage rate it does affect intake because passage rate means the more the faster the cow eats, the more she eats, the more it passes through. This is uh, you can see this with high producing cows versus low producing cows. Their intake is higher largely because of passage rate. It's also affected by particle size. But what they have found is, even though the passage rate is higher, the effect on fiber digestibility is not unbelievable because most of the particles have to be have to be less than about eight probably about six millimeters in length to exit the rumen and into the abomasum anyways. So that length is going to be predetermined. So as long as you have enough fiber and what they're suggesting is anything over four millimeters is effective fiber. Okay. That's, that's, that's very small. It's very small. So here, I'll give you the example. If you use the Penn State forage box, and uh, I think uh, we're traditionally using the two compartment plus the pan. 
mm-hmm. if you use the three compartment plus the pan, which we're not, we don't have not a lot of that in Ontario right now, but we have that in Europe. The top pan is greater than 19 millimeters. The second pan is greater than eight millimeters. The third pan is greater than four millimeters and the bottom is all the fine stuff. So I think Keith, you've heard about physically effective NDF, PENDF. Mm-hmm. The way they calculate that is looking at those top three pans added up. And you want a PENDF of let's say 21% of the total NDF. So what the work is showing, this is from Dave Mertens, is that even stuff at four millimeters has an effectiveness. It's not as effective as eight millimeters, but it still is effective. But what they're also finding is things over 19 millimeters is just leading to sorting behavior. It's not improving cut chewing. It's not improving um, you know, fiber digestibility. So 19 millimeters, I think if I do the math, is three quarters of an inch. Yeah. Right? It's not very long. So, so where you want to be, that 8 to, to 19 is where you want to be. That's kind of the key number. So then it comes down to what's the harvesting recommendation for haylage? And what's your harvesting recommendation for corn silage? So uh, on average, I say you want to be between 12 and 19 millimeters for corn silage and haylage. That's a, it's a blanket statement. What do you think people are harvesting at right now, Keith, on a lot of the alfalfa, a lot of the grasses? I'm just trying to think of like some of my client base and some custom workers that I talk to. And I think you're probably looking at, I'm going to say 15 to 17 on, on haylage. Yeah. And, and it's a lot different than a 15 to 17 on corn silage. Like it just seems like it's a lot stringier. Like you don't get the, you don't get a nice sheer cut consistency like you do with that. So, so what do we do? Do we, do we leave it there? Do we go shorter? And and I wouldn't go shorter. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what we find is a lot of producers still cutting about 25 millimeters, which is about an inch or longer. Mm -hmm. So on the, on the alfalfa and the grasses. So you look at there. So, so what I see, this, especially in Europe, you see corn silage at four to eight millimeters, which is powder. And then the grasses and alfalfa are at 25 to 35 millimeters. So, yeah. you, so they see this divergence in the cut length. And so where you want to be is somewhere between 12 and 19 to 20, I think, for both corn silage yeah. and haylage. But there's some differences. Maturity. If you have low quality, which is primarily maturity, you can cut it finer. If you have lush alfalfa that's really high quality, you can cut it longer. Mm-hmm. So this is where, you know, the, your question about do you cut it finer? Well, let's say it was really low quality first cut. This happened to be, you'd probably cut it at, you know, at 12 to 14 millimeters. If it's super lush alfalfa, then maybe cut it at 18 to 22. Yeah. If that makes I guess sense. you'll just have to, well, it's easy to adjust to. Like you just have to oh, yeah. make sure that when you're assessing your crop or when you got it laying on the ground there before you, I guess you even lay it down is just make yeah. sure like if your grass is mature, yeah. chop it finer. If it's, if it's still pretty lush exactly. grass, you maybe can go to that 15 to 18 or 20. So, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few things effective. One is the quality. So we just talked about quality is like, is largely maturity. So the lower yeah. the quality, the finer the cut. The other one is a, is a concept called fragility. And this is, we don't talk about it very much, but for example, BMR corn silage, the fiber in BMR traditionally has been fragile fiber. 
mm-hmm. which means it, it, it falls apart more easily than the corn, the conventional corn stock, if that makes sense. So fragility has an impact on uh, length of cut. So theoretically with BMR, a little bit longer. With conventional, a little bit shorter. But fragility is also part of alfalfa. So if you get dry alfalfa, that fiber is more fragile or breakable. So theoretically, you want to be a little bit longer. But grasses, that fiber is long. It's long fiber. Mm-hmm. When you think about grasses, is a long, stringy fiber, where alfalfa is not. So you can be finer on grasses and maybe a little bit longer on alfalfa. So this is the neat thing about this length of cut. It varies. It depends on when you harvest, how you harvest, what kind of ingredients you're harvesting. They all have an impact on uh, on rumen function. But the, the game plan is to be homogeneous in the TMR. That's the game plan. And I think that sorting is goes misdiagnosed a lot on farms like especially if you're troubleshooting butterfat issues and things like that like if you're just sitting there and watching cows and they're just they're pulling their muzzle back towards the feed rail you can bet your bottom dollar they're just they're just making holes to sort and try and uh yeah trying to disrupt things and and i know that the whole theory with the tmr is that you want every bite to be consistent you do i mean the interesting thing is that most cows eat standing up i know it sounds bizarre but they do (laughs) But most cows chew their cud lying down. So yeah. cud chewing is more of a resting behavior, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Right? So, so that's that's what we talked about, the resting time. Because they're, if they're at the bunk eating and eating and trying to reduce particle size, they're standing. But cud chewing is using a resting behavior. Uh, and I think that's fascinating. So they're just chewing away, chewing away very comfortably about an yeah. hour after a meal. You know. Yeah. So that, I think it's kind of fascinating how that works. It's kind of like us after a big dinner. Just lay on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Particle size, yeah. particle size makes a difference. Yeah. Well, all this stuff is fascinating. Like you never would have thought, you know, 10 years ago, how important this is. But I think as we learn more and fine tune these, these cows, like, like I, I think I mentioned in the last podcast is like, we do more by getting in their way than helping them out sometimes. Right. Yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. So, and we got to think about the cow as two different things. Like we got to think about, we're feeding the rumen. Yeah. Which is the cow is it's, it's carrier. Yeah. If that makes any sense. So oh, it does. I mean, the, the other thing too is you can be too fine. Like we're talking about, you know, we want to be finer, but you can be too fine. Um, yeah. And then any fiber that leaves the rumen, theoretically zero digestibility, to be honest, uh, because the fiber digestibility and fiber inherently is low digestible for for monogastrics like you know pigs and that type of thing. So if the fiber leaves the rumen undigested, it's not going to get digested in the hindgut or the large intestine. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So if you do have very very fine stuff, you're going to have a high passage rate. You know, and uh, the cows are not going to produce. They're not going to get the energy out of the fiber. If that makes sense. Yeah, it's just so, going to either eating for the sake of eating, and they're maybe not getting. Yeah. So you're, you're going to get high intake and low production. Yeah. That makes sense. So your feed efficiency, not very high. So, yeah. But the other thing I was going to talk about was, um, and this is something I know is, is people know this, but the fascinating thing is that um, starch, which everyone assumes is high energy and it is, is glucose. Fiber is glucose. It's so that's the interesting form. thing. Yeah, it's just the one's an alpha bond, one's a beta bond, which means just how they're linked together. 
Yeah. So here's the neat concept is that you're trying to get glucose out of starch and out of, um, out of fiber. It's a lot easier for the cow to get out of starch. It's simple. Fiber is tougher. So you got to think about how am I going to release glucose from the fiber to get the most energy? And the future will be less corn, less starch, and more digestible fiber. That's going to be the future in the next 10 years. Uh, so they, you know, the, these highly digestible grasses, uh, alfalfas, all these things will have a huge impact on, on production. But I, I like that, that analogy because they're both glucose. One's locked in this fiber, hard for a cow to get out. One's in starch, and it's kind of easy for the cow to get out. Uh, we just want to release. We want to release the energy from the fiber. Is kind of the key thing. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because there's diets out there that we're doing that are you know 75 percent forage, and the only way we can do that is with high high quality forage because then the cow's getting that energy from that fiber rather than us supplementing it with uh grains or yes. proteins so well there's some interest in the grass-fed um milk production uh, in ontario yeah. so one of the key um parts of that program you can't be any higher than 25 percent concentrate on a pasture base and maybe 30 percent concentrate in the winter time that means 30% concentrate and there's, and there's no corn silage. So it's just grass. That means you have to have the highest quality grass available to get the energy you need to maintain milk production. So if you have some producers considering grass fed dairy, you're not going to get the milk production unless you have the highest quality grass you can, you can have, which means cut it early, early, early. That's cut it early. You, cut it yeah. often. You have to. Otherwise, you won't get the energy out of that grass, right? Is you're trying to get glucose out of fiber and, and not out of starch because the starch can be limited by how much concentrate you can feed. So. Yeah, yeah. No, Bill, this is this is fascinating. Like I know it's this is one of my favorite times of year. Like we're coming into first cut. Like there's a yeah. it's a it's a blank slate for us as totally. as nutritionists because we get to restart and try and fix any issues that we had last yeah. year, but they're there's so many variables that get thrown at us between weather maturity, you know, is the custom operator, like, do I have to book them now or do I have my own equipment to cut? Like, there's just so many things that go into it. Oh, I think yeah. when we have discussions and conversations like this, like it just, uh, it helps us plan ahead. And I think, uh, planning ahead is half the battle. Like if, if you've got a good solid plan, at least you have a basis to start with. And if you have to deviate from that, that's, not that big of a deal like we can adapt but you okay. know if you've got to hire a custom chopper and you know it's may 20th and you haven't talked to him yet or talked to them yet no. you know i think this is the exactly. time of year where we have to really start thinking about this so well it's funny over the you know the past 40 years i think about how we do, we do things and how we did things in the past but i think in the past we were great at showing you what your forage analysis was and we would say oh my gosh this is low quality we don't want to be there. We want to be at a point where you can say, here's how you can affect quality by cutting earlier, by doing this, by harvesting correctly. And then the feed analysis will be great. I think it's kind of the key thing. But, well, it uh, makes, it makes our job easier too. Like it's a lot well, easier totally. to balance a diet with good forages than if you're sitting there scratching your head, okay, I'm limiting all my energy. Yep. Like, how am I going to get more energy into these cows? Okay. Well, I'm going to have to feed some more grain or feed some fat and, you know, higher price. Um, totally feed so you know homegrown yeah. feed you know we always put a value of a per ton on it but typically a producer uh their cost production is quite a bit lower so 
Yeah. Um, well, it's funny that Eastern European herd is at 55 or 56% concentrate right now. Yeah. Which is unheard of in Ontario, not unheard of, but it's unusual in Ontario, right? Yeah. High forage quality. But um, some of that's been tempered with things like soy hulls and some of those things just to, to keep the concentrate high, but improve the fiber digestibility is kind of the key. So, yeah. Uh, was there any other final thoughts that you had with producers coming into uh, to first cut? I know we covered off, you know, cut timing, height, length, ash, yeah. um, fiber digestibility, well, why it's important. There's some environmental issues. Cool, cool weather tends to improve quality uh, because the plant is less mature. But then a lot of producers wait longer to get a more mature plant. But so weather has an impact. Hot temperature tends to uh, decrease fiber digestibility. So you get hot, hot weather, you tend to get more uh, lignin and a faster maturity. So you, you lose digestibility that way. But it really depends when you harvest as well, right? But that's a, that's a general thing. If you have a drought stress, you tend to increase digestibility. If you have a, too much water, you tend to decrease digestibility. So there are some environmental issues. Um, and the other one, which I thought was interesting, was plants per acre are highly influenced by soil quality. So the better the soil, you can get more alfalfa plants per acre, sorry, per foot, more alfalfa plants per foot than poor quality. So if you do, we recommend doing a, uh, a plant count and a stem count in the field this time of year, just to see where you're at. Mm-hmm. And uh, your soil quality has a huge impact on how many stems you have or how many plants you have and per square foot. So yeah. That's something to think about as well. Yeah. And that goes back to you know, fertility and drainage, soil type. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I just want to talk about quickly too is safety. And I know this is the time of year where everybody's kind of run off their feet, they're planting and it's going right from, you know, manure to tillage, to planting, to, to harvest and, um, fatigue really comes into it. So I just wanted to, uh, to make sure everybody stays safe out there. You know, I hate hearing these, um, stories in the news about farmers that, uh, that have accidents. And I know a lot of them are preventable and I know I, I myself, when I get fatigued, I get, uh, my brain just doesn't work nearly as well. So <laughs> anyways, Bill, uh, that was a fascinating topic and I, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast again and, and sharing some of your experiences and your insights with, uh, the producers out there. I know your roles changed a little bit, um, you know, consulting and, and doing some stuff. And I know I'm a little bit jealous. I've asked you to take me some places around the world where you've been going, but I, we haven't found a suitcase big enough yet, but, uh, maybe one of these days. So. <laughs> Once we get traveling again, we, we should do that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks Bill. Right. I appreciate it. And, thanks. uh, stay safe out there. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.